Names have power. Like a clandestine magic spell cast on all of us. Subscribing to tribes for identity, creating social labels that form herds. We cage ourselves in our carefully crafted social zoo. What if we leave some things unnamed? What if identity was more fluid? What if being socially and spiritually promiscuous was the key to opening our cage? Leaving this zoo, allowing us to freely wander in a world of uncaged animals. I'm your host, Gabe Wells, and this is the Saturated Life Podcast, episode number three, with the classically trained pop surrealism oil painter and a beacon of inspiration, Carrie Ann Pata. very much a product of my time, so it's taken me years to reconcile having one of the most contemporary avant-garde educations and then reconciling it with being a having been in a figurative academy that's more similar to the education that would have been in the 19th century. And any four-year school, it's, it's really a stretch to teach an artist everything they need to know just in an undergraduate degree, but I was attempting to reconcile pretty much two totally different mindsets. And as an educator now, I'm a professor at Florida State University. I, I'm still doing it. Like, I'm still seeing what's valuable about the past and how to integrate it with what is contemporary and cutting edge. From the Art Institute of Chicago, I did a few years doing Trump Lloyd painting and book finishing, and then I got my graduate degree at the at, uh, University of Delaware, which is one of the only programs for art conservation in the United States. I did not study art conservation, but I used to be married to an art conservator, and I studied many of the classes that the undergraduate art conservation students take. So I was attempting to use electrospectroscopy or documents that used electrospectroscopy and x-ray to see how paintings were composed. And I was very interested in the materials and techniques that the old masters used, and then how to apply that to something that was my own. But while I was a little bit aware of the pop surrealist, when I was in graduate school, my work was not derivative of their work at that time. It was just unusual that because the work was narrative, it spoke to the art, you know, the artists and the, the gallerists that were coming out of California, and so I was swept up in that movement and now that's kind of been integrated into the art world so it's not so much a specific genre anymore i'd say it's been it's proliferated out of control and then it was somewhat like the best of each wave of pop surrealists was assimilated into pretty decent galleries it really has i mean it seems like some of the best artists are coming out of California. You're much more um, academic than anybody I've talked to, uh, painter-wise. You have a different perspective. But that's also on... been a pleasure. You know, yeah. it's like I, I've been associating myself with a couple of movements that didn't come out of academia, and they're considered populist art movements. So the pop surrealists, which came out of the lowbrow, and then the visionary artists. So why those artists are coming out of California was there, it's, the location itself is 
very counterculture, and there's a history of a love of kitsch. So while the 20th century, the critics and the academics went to minimalism and abstract expressionism and things that were really dictated by the critics or the elite, California has just maintained its own identity, and it has a prestigious history of illustrators that then manifested and came into popularity after the turn of the century or the turn of the millennium. So it's, it's just been, the last 12 years has been extraordinary because so, suddenly yeah. you can make whatever you want as an artist and find a market for it, but it's hard to survive because there are so many artists that are emerging. And but good. simultaneously, <laughs> it's really exciting. Yeah. You know, it, I don't think there's any better time to be an artist than right now. Not only is just, there's so many really good artists, but there's just this great venue now of the internet to be exposed. I mean, I found you online. <laughs> I didn't see you at a gallery. Did you happen to look at the Surrealist Artist Board Forum by John Bionart? Yeah. That was really um, pivotal for my art career, but it was also, it's semi-historic, and I'm really proud of him for, for maintaining the site as it is. And he, he did something really unique. He mixed high and low artists. And he did a big favor to me. He never had met me before. He just liked my work. And he put my work adjacent to H.R. Giger and Alex Gray, who had a much, you know, decades, many more years of experience than I did. And so that was like 2005, 2006. And honestly, I was painting and I had, was winning awards, but I wasn't obscurity and I wasn't making a living. I was an authentic, starving artist who watched other jobs just to paint. And all of a sudden, I had 10,000 friends on MySpace, uh, mostly little girls from around the world who wanted to know what it was like to be famous. Yeah. And that's pretty shocking when the crack house across the street's just been busted and you're not sure how you're going to pay your rent. And it's like, okay, so now I'm famous. And and with that, it's uh, Nietzsche has a, a quote about screaming into an abyss. And to paraphrase it, it's like, the internet is a lot like screaming into an abyss. Many artists, many people are attempting in some regard to get people's attention. And so look at me, look at me, look at me. And one day the abyss looks back and it's completely shocking because now what are you going to do? Yeah, it's a democracy. It's like a pure democracy. It's like, hey, this person's good and we all start recognizing it. And there are nuances within that. I'll give an example. Um, my art like because I've spent a lot of time going all over the world and looking at paintings and studying with other artists, um, the, the surface quality of my work is dimensional. Like there's paint quality to it. And so like, I don't think anything replaces seeing art in person. No, uh, another example, my students will be, it, I, I think, um, Abstract expression is dangerously close to having the new generation not comprehend why it was ever significant. Mostly because they haven't seen it in person they, and it hasn't been part of their education to understand the circumstances that created it. And until you're standing in front of a giant Barnett Newman, you're just not going to get it. And it's something that the, the Internet doesn't stand in for. You can make yourself aware of something, and I think that's why these narrative illustration influenced artists have done so well is because it does translate well to the internet but some work i will just say 
has more to offer in person. Absolutely. That's one of the things I want to talk to you about because I've I read that you traveled a lot and you went through Europe and everything. I'm a huge fan of going to galleries and museums. It's like a concert to me. Mm-hmm. I I love it. So, but I haven't been out of the country. I mean, I've lived in, in New York City. I've lived in Boston and so forth. So I've got to see some really good art, but not that European museums that I've heard are just, you know, a step above. Do you think that is true? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, like, I, it's always, you know, it's, it's just always been my objective to see art in person. And so while some people, I mean, I have seen a lot of concerts in person and I do follow music festivals, but... Um, Rather than seeing certain locations like beaches or my brother, uh, he's an artist, but he also is a climber. So, you know, he's more interested in going to locations where he could climb at certain times in his life. Like, it's it's much more significant just to my development as an artist and who I am that all I did was go to music. It was like I was going to go on a vacation. It was like, okay, we can see these 13 museums. At the same point, I, I'm a little, I might be a little saturated. And what's interesting is this transfer over, like, with Art Basel. And if I were to recommend something about, like, contemporary art, Art Basel in Miami, the first week of December, is really an exciting time to see a lot of contemporary art. It's not just every gallery in the United States. It's really every gallery in the world goes to that art fair. And for four or five days, you're just completely immersed in what's contemporary and then the other intention, you know, I would say that was like my intention 20 years ago, actually 30 years ago, is to see art in person. I, I grew up in a vacuum in rural Colorado, so I just wanted to be immersed in culture. But five years ago, I made the intention that I wanted to meet artists in person, somewhat like yourself. And that really changed my path entirely, because no longer was I just going for a museum to see the art, but I was going to workshops and going to venues to meet artists in person. So, like, one person, do you know Alex Gray? Yes, I do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that was the first person. It, yeah. it just so happened, all the synchronicity lined up. It was like, as soon as I wrote that intention, I saw he was going to Bali, and Bali was, like, the place that had eluded me for 20 years. So I was just like, screw it, I'm going. And immediately I sold five paintings, and it was during the worst part of the recession. So for me to sell five paintings all at once was just like, wow, that's that's significant. And then I won, uh, it's like the NEA grant for Florida. So I won that state award. And so suddenly I, I had enough money not only to go, but to stay in Bali for a while. And it's really, truly been the deepest, uh, most life-altering thing I could do is to meet new communities, new makers who are living right now. And meeting Alex Gray seems like it would be um, a shift in your consciousness. Yeah, it makes the world a little different um, because from there, Robert Finosa recently passed, but kind of by, you know, by way of Alex Gray, I'm now friends with Amanda Sage, who's from Boulder. She's a remarkable artist. As a result of uh, working with her and Maura Holden, I ended up meeting Ernst Hoop, who is one of the most important surrealists of the 20th century. He was friends with Dolly, and I would say he's more of a spiritual surrealist. And it's just that he hasn't had a retrospective yet. So the world, I, I don't think he's had his real coming out. I, and I hope that happens during his lifetime. You, it is not untypical for a nurse to have to pass away before the art world really honors them for their life's work. What was his name again? Ernst Spook. S-U-C-H-S And I think that his place in the evolution of art 
has, you know, he's not in our major surveys for art students or anything. I think he's been pretty overlooked. And I, I think he'll, I think as we see how the next 50 years old unfold, there's so many artists, contemporary artists who are influenced through his work and his teaching that I think they're going to have to include him because of his placeholder. You know, he's a placeholder in the evolution of the artist to come. You know, it's, it is an extraordinary privilege to paint, but to be alive and meet other extraordinary artists, such as both of those men, is um, that, that, that trumps all. That's been extraordinary, and I've brought... So what did you learn in Bali? Uh, let's see. I guess when I was 20, so, you know, about 20 years ago, there were, there were a large number of exports coming from that location, and I recognized that I didn't want to buy the clothing and the objects and the jewelry so much as I under I could see through the products that were coming out of there, and I'm like, I want to meet the people in this culture. There was just an overwhelming joy and spirituality that seemed to come directly out of products from that location, and I was in no way disappointed. So what, what, what was significant for myself is so much of their spirituality has um, – based off of Hindu and it has flavors of Buddhism and then there's a, a beautiful expat population that's also embellishing the spiritual tendencies of the location but very often they represent um, their deities and their places of worship with like a checkerboard light and dark and so rather than focusing on just the good trying to say you know evil bad they acknowledge the light and the dark and it's not as though they're saying be dark too but there's just more balance it doesn't mean that you're going to follow darkness but darkness is part of what informs the light that's just one of the first few times i ever felt normal i think that that's something that's desperately needed in our society just an, an integration of acknowledgement and uh so much of surrealism is plumbing the depths of darkness Suffering, sorrow is a part of our existence, and we can't possibly take a pill to end suffering. So I think it's much more balanced to acknowledge that this is just part of our experience and try and use as much grace as possible. A weird thing about meeting people that you consider maybe dark or or maybe like gothic or something like that is these really, they look dark, they look you know, kind of menacing in a way. When you meet them, they're super nice. Their appearance doesn't match up to their personality most of the time. And I just feel like, you know, I look like I'm a demon, but no, no, I'm actually a really nice guy. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I, I belong to a dark culture of one sort of another for the majority of my life. And I've interacted with people like Paul Booth, the tattoo artist. And mm-hmm. if I can't act as an ambassador, what I would say is the majority of people who have that much, you know, kind of like a spiny creature or, you know, don't, you know, don't interact with me kind of vibes. They're extraordinarily sensitive. And whether it's empathy or um, awareness, many of them have a lot of gifts and have a lot to offer. It's taken me a long time to see what it might be like not wearing all black (laughs) and see what it was like interacting with people in lots of different regards and, and being out in the public, like now I can speak to 300 people and not suffer from too many side effects. But um, 
I just know my gifts are in the dark. I think I have a lot of insight to offer the, you know, if I have any insight to offer the world, it might be through those more uncommon places that in general, the population would be more balanced for embracing their darkness rather than trying to avoid it. I would agree. So you, you have been speaking at, you said in front of like 300 people, you just, you're driving up right now from, um, what, what college did you speak at? I just spoke at USS, University of Southern Florida and Sarasota Art Center. But I, I speak at colleges pretty regularly. It's been a pleasure to be able to interact with so many, you know, 18 to 22 year old students in particular. That seems to be the age group that I grok and they grok me. So we have a great time. And what are your lectures about? Um, well, I lecture about, you know, there's there's part of my biogra- biographical information and part of my how my art evolved. I really choose to use my work as an illustration to talk about the artistic experience, the human experience, and I give a lot of advice. Um, most of it's pretty grounded in um you know, universal win- wisdom. I'm pulling from lots of different books and experiences. Uh, I'd be happy to send you. I have a four-page document that will be- appear on my new website, and it's notes to a- an emerging artist. Talks about the kind of mentality you need to have in order to survive. For example, uh, one of my favorite quotes is Abraham Lincoln, which is, "Success is going from failure to failure without losing your enthusiasm." Yeah, that's. So <laughs> I can see that. That's not about. Quote. I was given letters to a young poet by Wilka over and over again, and it was the kind of book that I never read. Like it was always just either stolen or borrowed out of my apartment. So I was in my 30s before I ever read it, even though it'd been given to me over and over again since I was 18. And when I read it, I just felt like it was really self-indulgent. It was an expert talking to a young person in a way that it sort of was like wallowing in, in expectant self-pity for how challenging it is to be an artist. And I'm much more of the mindset of this isn't about looking at your wounds and needing to share each other's sorrow. It's just more like, nope, you're, you're, you've got a battle and what's your best strategy and how do you get up and move forward? Yeah, definitely. How long you, how long have you been teaching now? I started teaching when I was in high school. I taught preschool. When I got to college, I taught people who have schizophrenia. And then I pretty quickly after undergrad started teaching printmaking at a community college. But it was always my goal to be a professor. I just had researched it enough and knew that that was part of my family's legacy. They're educators and that 18 to 22 is my age group. I, I taught, oh, you know kid camps and adults and and knew very quickly that that was where people were the most open-minded and where it could change their lives the most. And I'll give you an example. Hitler was a failed artist. (laughs) So if we're really looking at the first line of defense, uh, failed artists have a tendency to be pretty destructive forces. So helping people to manage their creativity and put the best possible things into the world, I can only imagine to be a benefit. Art can take a lot. You know, if you need to get art, if you need to express yourself, art's a perfectly safe place to do it, you know, if we're talking about painting. So there are other ways to express ourselves that, that aren't as benign. How much artwork do you get done being a, a professor? 
Well, and I look at this as a work of my entire lifetime, and I hope after looking at the different types of artists there are, and I read a lot of biographies, like, you know, I'd like to be an artist that works into their 80s. So there's certainly sacrifices on my time. But this is one of the few oscillating devices that create balance where you go into the classroom and you teach and you go home and paint. And, um, you know, I get almost four months off a year to do what I love. So I consider the service a small sacrifice for the freedom. That's huge. Four months off? I would love if my job gave me four months off. You know, (laughs) you got to sew it together just right. But yeah, it's about four months off. And if I teach at a research one institution, which while we hold teaching to be amongst our, you know, most important endeavors, we are considered to be researchers first, meaning that what we create is valued and it, our research is supported. So it's an incredible honor. You've been sh- you've shown your work at a lot of different places. Do you just do a lot of group shows now, or, or do you still are you still able to do solo shows? Well, last year I showed in twelve group shows and had three solo shows. One of those was at the Contemporary Museum of Art in Jacksonville. I've chosen to show my work not only in community venues regionally, but nationally, and then also internationally. In China, and right? And you- Yeah, I did show all the way in China. Did you go to China? I did. What did you think? I think the most extraordinary part of my journey was that it was the second largest museum in China, very contemporary, and as we know, um, a lot of their historic cultural inheritance was destroyed during the revolution in the 20th century. So it was a very large museum, and it wasn't as though they had a permanent collection, and I had hand-carried my own work over, but uh, there was also a student exhibition from the local art school there, and I noticed at their reception, because I was there for a few weeks, um, that all of their instructors were male, and the majority of the art students were female, and from visiting places like Shanghai, I also noticed there were not a lot of adult female artists. And that's just a sign of how their culture is shifting to have all these young women. And it was very clear that I was one of the first female artists they had ever met. So there were a lot of photographs taken. And, you know, it was sort of like being the Beatles. They were really, (laughs) truly excited. And I was in my gospel Lita phase, so I was all dressed up in a corset and very, you know, cutesy. And they just went nuts. Oh, that's great. Actually, I mean, that was just significant for your life. I had one that was much more dynamic that happened shortly after that that blew my mind. In fact, it took years for me to understand what happened. Um, so I teach in, at Florida State University, which is in northern Florida, in Tallahassee, and pretty much that's like, that's a football school. Um, we have a very good university, but football is king. So very little rivals football in terms of enthusiasm. My second year there in September, I was given a show at a community center that had no air conditioning and I was sort of terrified to put my work in there because, you know, this place is really grassroots. It's all almost all volunteer. There's no insurance. And I was like, God, what am I doing? So I put my work in there and it's like 110 degrees. 
but it was they have a first Friday. That's when the community comes out. And, mm-hmm. you know, somebody told me that my work got in the paper. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I go to the opening, and, yeah, there's a ton of people there. And at some point, the director told me that they have one of those, like, it's a handheld counter that tells how many people came in, and they had a girl at the door. And she's like, shit, the counter thing broke. <laughs> in my head, I'm like, well, just get another one. It just didn't occur to me what she was saying was that, the counter broke when 3,500 people came in, and that was halfway through the show, meaning we can kind of guess like 5,000 people came to my opening. Wow. And partially just because they were so excited about the work. I mean, on an average first rate, we do get a few thousand people out, but this is like really unusual. And I didn't realize until the art center almost collapsed in the recession and I was the president. I, I got on the board because I, I figured I owed them for what they had given me. So I was on the board, then I was president of the board. And then the director, that position disappeared with the money from the grants that were supporting our in our community. So suddenly I was the ipso facto director and president of the board. So then I was having to look through grants and understand the statistics. And no one had ever that many people had never come through that gallery before. So it blew my mind. It was like, am I painting for 400 people in LA or am I painting for an entire community that's dying to have magic and see something exciting that's cultural? Yeah. I'm from Florida. I I lived maybe like 10 years there. Uh, Ocala, which, so I understand your oh, yeah. perspective of growing up. I'm almost, I'm almost driving through Ocala right now. So for <laughs> an artist to grow up in Ocala, you don't really get exposed to art. I would have to drive to Orlando for anything, and even then it wasn't that great. I spend an awful lot of time bringing art and culture to Tallahassee just because, well, it's entertaining. Mm-hmm. I mean, last year, uh, 2011, for, the last, for four years before that, I've been working on a curation project called Cute and Creepy, and I brought 26 artists, most of which are pop surrealists, to Florida State Museum. So artists such as Lori Lipton, Travis Bowie, Kate Clark, Kathy Olivas, and um, Heidi Typher, and others. And again, it was just like, wow, the magic of the internet and everything I've learned from marketing. And I was able to bring in 11,000 people from our community in one month. And that's three times the amount that had ever attended that museum. I mean, it was such, it was a labor of love. It was a love letter to all of the artists that I'd met along the way that fit into the title. I mean, I certainly met far more artists than that, but, you know, cute and creepy was um, our theme. And it was just an extraordinary pleasure to get to show off Martin Whitfoot to my students, people who I had come of age with and shown in shows and gotten to meet. So it was really cool. Are you putting on more shows? Any no. plans? No, because, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the lesson there was, like, if you're an art facilitator, you don't get to be a maker. And I had a lot of really fertile experiences taking over an art center, contributing to culture by curation. Like, now I'm just... I'm so ready to be in the studio, and it feels great. You know, you make a lot of decisions to do that, and it's a privilege. Yeah, I love painting, and if you you just go away from it for a little while and then come back to it, it is really like a breath of fresh air. You just feel good getting back into it. Um, So you do get to show your artwork in a bunch of galleries and so forth. Uh, Do you use an agent, or do you market yourself? 
the closest I ever got to that was, um, well, again, I used to spend a lot of time just sending out my website. And like eight, nine years ago, I sent it to somebody named Alex Sloan. And I wasn't familiar with who she was. I just knew that she was representing artists like Judith Schechter and Julie Heffernan, whose work I really respected. And I said, hey, check, check out my work. And um, I was in a situation where I didn't have enough money to eat and pay rent. And she offered for a really small fee to help me with my career. And for two days, I sweated because I knew that was the same amount of money I didn't have. And I gave it to her. And it catalyzed my career in a way that is impossible to tell how much it did. But I don't think I'd exist at all. In, in the incarnation I'm at without her having been a catalyst. Oh, wow. So, and she, it turned out she was the former director of Billy Shire Fine Art. Okay. You know, and it's like, the thing is, is it's not about who you know, it's about everything. It, it's about timing. It's about having the right work at the right place at the right time with all the right circumstances. You know, it's, it's really, it's, it's magic. I actually saw your work for the first time uh, with these lowbrow tarot cards. You, your work is on it. Okay. Are you into tarot cards? Do you do tarot readings or is this your artwork? Yeah, I actually read almost every day. Tar- I didn't you read tarot when I started that project, but yeah, I do now. Wow. So wait, every day, what would, so what is it every day? Do you do it like when you're drinking your coffee in the morning or something? Does it start <laughs> well, your day off with a tarot well, card reading? I mean, I got I got into this because I like I've all my life read signs and symbols, and when I was younger, I read teaching, and then I got back into that a couple years ago, and then I've read a few books now on this row as it relates to Jungian psychology, and I'm interested in the universal. I'm interested in symbols, so it just depends. Sometimes my friends call me up and want to know things, and I have an uncanny ability to tell them. Exactly they need to hear and sometimes you know I, I wouldn't consult the I Ching for the same things I consult the tarot for it they're like they both have really unique and interesting ways of suggesting futures or suggesting possible patterns and possibilities okay so explain I actually don't know how I Ching works can you can you give an ex- explanation of what, what exactly it is it's 64 hexagrams that are determined by Yarrow 6 or coins and they also have changing lines and I have been absolutely blown away by how specific their answers can be by you know you have to craft a really good question an appropriate question but then I've I've you know seriously just screamed out loud by the the amazing ability for it to um, open your mind to how to look at something a little different or maybe the truth of the situation. But so you have you have friends that call you for tarot cards and I Ching readings. Which one do you get more requests for? That's my for? best friends. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, part of the time they're they're just friends that I want to know answers and and you know, there might be like an element of like, hey, you know, that's what friends do is they just help you kind of strategize what the best solution is for whatever. But sometimes it's like, well hey, let's Let's ask the cards. Let's see what this. Let's see what happens. And most of the time, you know, you're you're presently surprised 
because, um, I mean, I found this with my own work. The more personal I am with what's happening in my life that I reveal in a painting, the more it speaks universally. So that means that there's an element of each and every precious existence being a cliché. Okay. And I think that's what's so powerful about, you know, literature and movies is that we can identify with really powerful stories, but some things are repetition. Yeah, it's archetypes, right? Is Absolutely. That a young, it's a young Absolutely. man thing, right? I'm a big, big believer in archetypes. Well, it was what was so significant about Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. Star Wars, Harry Potter. Um, I mean, oh, they, yeah. I, I'm interested in how fiction and real life intersect as well. So, I, I, I want to delve more to the tarot cards. How, how long have you been... I'm really interested in this stuff. I actually don't... I'm pretty much a skeptic, but I'm so open to these things. Because actually, in my in my past, I had somebody do a like lay out a birth chart for me, like one of those uh, astrology birth charts, and um, it was so eerie. It was so eerie how much stuff came up, and and I was like, well, maybe she knows me, so maybe I'll just do it. I'll have her do it for a couple people that she's never met before, and things that came up that you wouldn't know about these people. Like my roommate was a nympho. He never, she never met him, but <laughs> sex, sex ruled his chart. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sex ruled his yeah. chart. But I, I'm so interested yeah. in some of these weird coincidences that come up through things like, you know, tarot cards. Um, how do I say this? At times, I've been great friends or maybe a partner of an atheist or scientist. And so, you know, I, I, I use a bit of a method, you know, like I like to observe. I'm much more interested in patterns and watching how patterns evolve and shift based off of archetypes, sign symbols. And I had to start giving credence, and I'll give you an example why. Like my students, uh, there's an expression that artists are the canary in the coal mine. So that I would start to watch, and it's like, wait, this is like the third person today who's suicidal. What in the world is in the water going on in the world that everybody's tripped out today or this week? You know, all the electronics broke. So it was sort of by way of just watching signs and symbols in general that I started to become friends with astrologers. Like I'm a good friend of Bridget Walter, who used to write for Elle magazine. And then um, I've had several friends who were interested in tarot. And it was actually, again, it was by way of Jungian psychology that I was like, hey, wow, this is there are some really interesting patterns and ideas about human behavior, I'll give you an example, like this connection between the emperor, the empress, the high priestess, and the hierophant as being a metaphor for how people cycle through ideas. So the empress is the incredibly fertile, um, idea-making, intuitive part, where the emperor is the guy who gets things done, and he actually manifests them into the reality a bit like a father. And then... The high priestess is part of the intuition and the invention and the genius that's necessary to manifest these things into reality. And then the hero fan, which is also related to like a pope or a priest, is the person who is more like the critic. They look at what's come into the world and they go, okay, that was good, that was bad. And if you have a fully functioning system, it goes back to the empress who goes, hey, I have an idea. And the whole process starts over. But if people are stuck in being overly self-critical and they judge the person themselves in the hero fan mode instead of the project, like instead of 
like looking at, let's say, the bookshelf that she just put together and going, okay, I like this about what I made and I don't like this about it. And, okay, I'm going to go make another one and put this into motion and make it perfect this time. And instead you just beat yourself up and go, I suck at this. I'm not any good at it. Or, or you overthought somewhere so that nothing produced. Absolutely. These just become metaphors for how certain modes of thought work. So, yeah, metaphors, parables, um, analogies. I mean, he, Jesus taught in parables. I'm interested in telling stories through stories, and what better way to do that than the oldest stories, which the the, the cards that we play poker with in Canasta are based, they, they are um, intermingled with the tarot. So this is, you know, something that's existed for hundreds of years that people have developed and seen into... And then I use the Crowley deck. I mean, he's got kind of a serious reputation, but they were created very artistically, and he made some updates in the 20th century that I thought were unique and inventive. So I'm playing with that deck just to see what I can see into it. And so there are some highly um, resonant, you know, resonating symbols within those. And it's just a process. I mean, in that regard, it's all, it's like, you can't take anything too seriously. It's all a game, but it's a real game. You know, you have to take everything seriously and nothing seriously. The truth is in the paradox. So I'm not basing major decisions off of this. It's just a way to reflect and consider and, and sometimes be surprised. Do you? So it's not a way to predict anything from happening. Maybe it's a way to, to help you understand things that have already happened? Is that what you're saying? It's a tool. You know, I, I don't think that I'd have any more, um, you know, a hammer's a tool. It can be used in a way to construct something or it can tear something apart. You know, I, I think that it's a very interesting device that has the capacity to elucidate meaning. Interesting. But it's very uncanny. <laughs> <laughs> um, you don't use the, the lowbrow deck? Um, that to me is much more sentimental. You know, yeah. I think the older I get the more it's going to be a reflection of the people and the place and the time. Um, Anya Khan has been an absolutely beautiful person to work with, creating books and curating, um, to be able to be creating the same lifetime as Chris Cooksey. I, I've been to his studio. We've been a lot of shows together, and it's just been um, an extraordinary privilege to get to interact with he. Yeah, he's amazing. And he's from Hayes, Kansas. He's just five hours away from you. He's in Kansas? Really? Yep. He's in Hayes. But that's the whole thing is I'm I'm interested in biographies. I was always reading biographies like Orson Welles. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright has an amazing history. Yeah, it's just what are the signs and symbols and circumstances that manifest a phenomenal artist or filmmaker, architect, politician? It's being human is extraordinary. It's all about the stories. What do you get out of Carl Young? If I may, here, here's the world according to me. Um, as a result of the age of reason and man separating themselves from spirituality and, and its relationship to religion, eventually God was dead. And I think it's interesting to look at the mindsets of religion, spirituality, and the major trends in well, at least in the Western world, because that's the one I'm from, and see how it affected art and how it affected people. And Freud was very much a product of his time and was a product of his, and he was 
stumbling over archetypes, animism, totems, and things that were an old magic that were before the age of reason that, you know, the scientific and the intellectual would denigrate into being primitive. And I think that that's a bit of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm, I'm a very inventive and creative person, but I also have had the privilege of having some very extraordinary things happen. And then also, uh, you know, there are Nobel Prize winners such as Terry Mullis who have written books about subjects that would otherwise discredit him and his own community. Mm-hmm. I think I've had um, my share of extraordinary things happen, and I'm not afraid to um, embrace the unknown so that he was bringing back spirituality. He was bringing yeah. back elements of what we call magic, and that this is, in my mind, you know, I hope during my lifetime that there will be more talk and more embracing about that world that might be rarely seen or more belong to the unseen. Um, one of my favorite quotes by Carl Jung is that archetypes are horizontal animals moving through our consciousness. And I love that because I see it as a wavelength. And what is what is a serpent or a dragon but an anthropomorphized wavelength? And if you look to the creation myth, all over the world, in every on every continent, in almost every culture, there is a serpent at the beginning. I'm not even getting into like whether that's good or evil, but all I think those are is at some point, again, the anthropomorphized wavelength can be visualized, an idea, a concept, these archetypes that are moving through that seem to have a mind of their own, like why two people can have exactly the same thought is um, it's a metaphor. The anthropomorphized wavelength consciousness is interpreted as a serpent or a dragon. Yeah. And Does that make sense? Um, that was pretty deep. Oh, I got to tell you that. Was I deep. know. But, you know, eventually, I'm on the planet to, like, <laughs> promote this idea. You know, I got to get my own book out to support it. But I've been working on this all my life. You know, it's like, why, why do we have these patterns? And then you start... You start the myths in motion. You start the storytelling. You bring back the bards. But you're, you're talking about bringing back magic. Or do you do you do anything that you you would consider magic, like the, the Wicca type <laughs> of stuff? Yeah, I can make some things happen, but you know, if there's no more control. I, I would say that the things that I teach are, you know, loosely based off Wayne Dyer. It's like uh, that was the first book that I read about making intentions that define what I've done all my life. I've always made lists and whatever I put down on that list, I did. And I did it so effectively. Like I want to go to Europe. Boom. I'm in Europe. You know, I, I it's not just like, uh, the money was given to me very often. I had to work very hard for what I wanted, but I seem to be one of those people that get it done. And that's what I teach my students how to do the first thing you have to do is recognize that your mind is your garden. You have to plant good things in it because if you man, if you plant dark things, bad things, negative things, you're going to manifest those. And that's, that's a waste of space. It's a waste of a life. And it's, um, can be very fearful and ugly. So the second that they get control of what they want, 
you know, then let's start to make things happen, not only for ourselves, but for this society, for this culture, and for this world. There's this weird myth. The weird myth that I've been trying to figure out is, when was the Halcyon era, when everything was so perfect, this one that everybody is suffering from and saying that it's never going to be as good again? I've read biographies in the last 500 years or more. When was it ever perfect? And why are we all turning up our toes and believing that we can't? This whole mentality of defeatism is what will destroy people, and it's bullshit. And it's just as much a myth as anything else that might be so unconventional as to be called magical and be dismissive. You're going to believe in a reality that's shit? That's bullshit. So um, one of my favorite quotes there is Frank Herbert great science fiction author who did Dune is that government is a myth. It's something that we choose to believe in. And until we get a better myth than capitalism in the United States, I've been all over the world and it doesn't matter if I ever at some point didn't believe in it or value it. I've been everywhere else. I've interviewed a lot of people. And at least during my lifetime so far, there isn't a better system. Nobody has invented it yet. So people either have to get it together and clean it up and make it something worth believing in, or you come up with something that's going to function and benefit this people, this place, this world, equally or better. Yeah, and you're a teacher. So, I mean, you're you're teaching these kids that are, like, 21 years old. Aren't they more um, aware of their, let's say, government, their community, their how this all works together? And do you feel, do you feel like, hopeful that this next generation – is going to do something more. Oh my God. Like- my gift, if I have a talent, is not painting. My gift is that I believe. I believe in people and I see their greatest potential. And that's why I'm there, is to help them manifest and become. But let's look at trees. Let's look at a big oak tree. They, they drop seeds all the time. How many become oak trees? How many actually reach maturity? And I can't look at the odds while they're mine. Yeah, I believe in them, and they are completely aware. But they have to make it. So many people believe in so many good things, so many ideals. They have faith. They have belief in that 18 to 22. It's beautiful. It's about maintaining it. You know, when I teach people, it's like about being an artist. It's like, no, it's not about something that will will afford you to be able to work full-time as an artist, You, I mean, in my opinion, you will always have two full-time jobs. You know, I have a full-time job teaching, and I have a full-time job painting. The majority of us, well, we have a name. Sort of one of those things that we come into the world with, they're given to us by our families. And I've always seen um, things that other people didn't see. And so I started to recognize that some names didn't, function or perform the same as other people's names. So if you've ever met someone and they stuck out their hand and they looked you in the eye and you're like, yeah, that person is so their name, they have a tremendous amount of confidence that seems to reach all the way into their ancestry and show you that they're from, you know, good people, that they're reliable, that you trust them and they are their name. You know, that's a tremendous amount of power to effect and it and it, it does affect every job every relationship 
our every interaction. And I'm a person who every semester calls roll. So that right there, I can tell you a whole lot about that person by when you call their name, how they answer back. Oh, yeah. So one of the things that I've chosen to do, it's sort of like name therapy, I don't you know, to call it, you know, I don't have a better name. <laughs> um, haven't haven't spent my energy on naming the naming thing, but helping people to understand what their name is, and really? that okay. there are stories within the symbolism of a last name, and there are stories within a first name, and they're connotative and denotative. Sometimes it's an understanding that the initials of all the men in your family are C J C. And then the name, the first name that you had never connected with, that you don't identify, even if you use the second name, which is like the name that you're functioning under in this lifetime, at least it helps you understand why someone would name you something that you don't connect with, because that misunderstanding will sabotage you. Um, another one, I met a young lady who I was working with who was of mixed descent and she didn't like her last name because it was the slave name her African great 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 grandmother was raped by a white landowner and she didn't want that man's name and then we looked up what it meant and it came from the hawthorn and the hawthorn the tree means the intermingling of the light and the dark then you suddenly have this extraordinary story that gives you the understanding that you are taking this name forward and that you are reconciling something that is part of your inheritance. So the way that I see it is all of our last names tie us to our ancestors. That's that, you know, part of the patriarchal society, but still that's how we were functioning through the last, what, 2,000 years or so, at least the last 500, and that those grounds an individual. And the reason I started to observe that was I met a lot of people who changed their names or changed their names a lot or disconnected themselves from the last name. Those people are not grounded. And that disturbed me. Wow. Also, um, spiritually, religiously, I've seen other cultures intersect our own and people take spiritual names. And I'm just like, I'm seeing a disruption. Um, so then the first names Sometimes they're arbitrary, but very frequently it's the aspirations of what the family wants you to be. And so this I saw partially because of looking at names and seeing a tremendous amount of irony, that there seemed to be some sort of information or path in the name. And very often if people weren't on the path in the way that was most productive, there was a tremendous amount of irony where they were the opposite of what their name meant, as though your name might mean um, God's gracious gift, and this is the poorest circumstance, you know, the heartbreaking person um, who is being taken for granted at every part in their life because they've, they're so gracious that they don't have an understanding of their own worth to the protection of their health, you know, sabotaging their relationships. So I think that really absolutely bizarre that we live in a culture where you ask people what their name means, which, you know, if you're Israeli, if you're Japanese, you know what your name means. And in America, you know, it's like, I think it's from a movie, it's like, yeah, our names don't mean anything. Well, they do. There's a story there, and people are not living their narrative. They're not connecting. You have to remember. 
And on a less mystical note of the name thing, though, did you read Freakonomics where they did a whole name? Uh, certain names can be, say, if your name Destiny, more than likely, if your name Destiny, statistically, you came from like a, a 16 year old mother, you know, it's somebody that. Yeah, you're gonna, you might become a stripper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like these, you could sell, you could, there's more, um, like angels and so forth with these lower income, um, young mothers. And then you get into higher, uh, incomes. And those names change, uh, names change throughout the age of the mother itself, like the statistically saying. Well, and I guess what I've observed within that is some people who are given the most divine names are, war- are names that mean a whole lot came from circumstances where those were the lofty aspirations of people who were living in, in a crumbling environment. Um, Interesting. I've yeah. seen people inherit huge names and they themselves not be able to take on the weight of what they signify. And, you know, I, if I talk to them, I kind of try and rub them up for it so they're not steamrollered by it can't you see the bigger arc of what it is that your family was hoping for by you manifesting into this reality? Yeah, my name's Gabriel. My, I did not come from a religious family either. <laughs> this is a biblical name, this important name. And I never even thought about that until you just you said that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe inquire, why Gabriel, Mom? What's oh, yeah, you got to ask. <laughs> you got to find out all of it. Because very rarely have I ever had a name not go into any narrative. And then, you know, sometimes they go backwards into the circumstances about the very week of your, you know, your first week on Earth. Um, Sometimes they go back 200 years. Um, And sometimes your name, you're becoming, and you're not going to fully become your name, and that story unfolds during your lifetime. And I think it does, I mean, if you're playing the game right, we never have a fixed definition. We're always evolving. I, I have the same definition of God. If ever you come up with a fixed definition of God, you've created growing. So I think that it's part of um, the nature of creativity and play and survival that we have to constantly roll with it and manifest and develop. What, is, what does Carrie Ann mean? <laughs> um Oh, let's see. One definition of carry is womanly, but then there's also the homonym to carry. And I've picked up all kinds of things. Um, I also have had a tremendous weight and a connection with St. Christopher. Um, I've also had to learn how to put things down. So just a responsibility not to pick up everything, but to have much more, you know, wisdom, boundaries, and discernment about what I was going to carry. But that um, Aquarius is the water bearer. So I carry water. I carry um, a lot of information, it would appear, that got forgotten. I, I, I'm not going to claim to be the progenitor of it, but I'm certainly trying to carry it to people who can use it. And most of the time, they're extraordinarily grateful. Interesting. Yeah. Well, um, so I don't know. You how want to far, wrap it up? No, I'm 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 checking with you. I can. So I didn't know how long you want to go on. If you, if you know if this is if this is fun no, for you. No, a lot of the got... things that we said in the later part, I'm much more interested in broadcasting than about my art career. Yeah, that's what I want to get into. I kind of feel like I wanted to just step into the art a little bit in these podcasts, but then really delve into more personality based, and that's 
because you can learn a lot more having these conversations. Like, just by people listening to you know your your beliefs, your artwork comes to life as well. It's like it's a deeper oh, understanding yeah. and appreciation. Oh, without of that. a doubt. So that's I totally agree. So that's um, if you're happy with this, then I'm totally happy with it because I didn't want to. I didn't want to like delve too far into things you maybe feel uncomfortable because some people don't like like talking about religion or spirituality. I love it personally. It's really revealing a lot about a lot of people, and especially with artists because it's all over the place. You know, they they. Well, I guess if I am an advocate for all of my students who are gay or homosexual, and we can have pride parades for them, you know, I really hope during my lifetime that there will be pride parades for, you know. Whatever we're going to call it when we get there, but whatever spirituality that permits the greatest potential of some of the things we've been talking about. I think a lot of it right now is just suffering from not having a better name. And it's just uh, suffering from dogmatic beliefs. There's too many people stuck on ideals that it's like you can grow and expand from those things. There should be a more of a merging of all these different ideas. We live in this great age of sharing of information. Why can't we start merging spirituality with quantum physics i mean there's there's so much like amazing stuff happening on the on the science side that can almost be described as spiritual you know so there should be like this bigger collective kind of consciousness than just i'm a christian or i'm a muslim or something like step Uh, outside you're able to you there's so much more to explore beautiful so that brings me back to one of my favorite stories Actually, I can pull this all together. So, let's see. Um, I got so interested in the Tarot, and I had never done performance art, and Tallahassee is such an amazing community, and we have a great First Friday. I found 22 people who um, either practiced Tarot or were interested in it, and we all personified one of the Tarot cards. And I was the high priestess. And we made it a scavenger hunt. We called it the Tarot Passport, and people would enter our art park on a first Friday, and they would go through all 22 major arcana, and each one of us would tell them about our card. And we were hoping that it would be like a cosmic game of peekaboo, kind of like, you know, for anybody who thinks that that magical world is just in Harry Potter books or just inside their head, like, you know, there are other people who believe and I mean it's just like belief and believing is so you know naive but it's really a fertile place for play and a healthy place for development so Mm -hmm. um, as the high priestess I actually exactly explained about the names and where you know the last names came from and the first names and talked to them about what they were putting in their minds and um showed them how to manifest their own wishes, which is making those intentions. But one of the girls looked at me with those, you know, tear-filled eyes, and when I asked her, what does your name mean? And she said, the word of God. And I said, how does that feel? She shook her head. She didn't like it. She didn't want that name. It obviously was hurting her. Really? And I said... Look, you know, each one of these religions is like a little faucet. You have the Christian faucet and the Muslim faucet and the Hindu faucet. Now, don't you think that that water, that that behind each one of those waves that is coming out is something much bigger and much grander? And that that 
is really what we're talking about here, that larger picture, that multiplicity of all of those different identities, that infinite variety of word of God, and she could go with me there and see the much bigger place instead of whatever whatever her family or her community had shown her was something very limited that she didn't enjoy. And that's an important message. Like what you just said is an important message. Like I really completely 100% agree with you. Like these are all just ripples from one main source. Like there, there is a lot of like correlation maybe basically most religions just say have the same kind of principle underneath it of just being, you know, good to one another and doing the best thing. But sometimes you get like these deeper, like I would love to see Christians get into Buddhism, like get into, get into this like, some really <laughs> deep introspective kind of idea um, okay, well, and I like to make up things, so I made it up as a joke, but they're real jokes, so I consider myself an art nun, and this is on my Facebook if you want to look at it. Um, we're spiritually promiscuous, and we have bad habits. It's exactly that idea. I don't want to be told what to believe. If I like something from the Muslim culture, and I want to blend it, you know, like paint with something from Buddhism, ah, you know, that's extraordinary, and my belief in religion is you know, also spirituality, it's all part of the human existence. It's not that by believing in something new that we destroy something old. And I, I believe in that like I believe in art history. Um, modernism attempted to eradicate all of Victorian art for being kitsch or being gauche. And so art that was considered the most important art of its time period was left in garage sales. And now I have students who look at Jackson Pollock and they don't understand it. And if it wasn't worth money, they too would put it in the landfill because it's out of not just fashion, it's out of comprehension. Mm-hmm. So it's incumbent upon each of us to understand our cultural inheritance and the value that each art, each religion was a product and a necessity, uh, a, something that materialized, that was brought into existence to serve a function that was essential to the time period and the people that it came from. And that by evolving or moving on, that we don't hate it. By hating, anytime you say, I hate, I'll show you what you don't understand. Yeah, that's a good point. And so it's coming up with a creativity and ingenuity that gives us the opportunity to be higher and more inclusive rather than exclusive. Because anytime you are excluding an art, a belief, a passion, you know, it's much more like that um, that we called fascism in the 20th century. Yeah. You know, we want to live in an inclusive world that's healthy, not an exclusive one that's damning. The closest we ever really get to God in this lifetime is in ourselves. You know, it, it, we are it, you know? This is where we live. And it's, it's inside of us, and we are a part of everything. So until you recognize that you are God, you know, you are magic, you are... You know, there are certain limitations, but if you start with the limitations, then you're not working with the possibilities. It's much more about, hey, what can we do? Let's try things. Let's play and look at what this world can be instead of what it isn't. Yeah. Do you meditate? And not just meditate. I mean, I like praying and I like meditating. I like seeing where they go in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm really interested in the different forms and the different practices. And then after taking classes or studying different types, seeing what I can do with it for a while and then going back and taking another class, like it's, it's healthy. 
It is. You know? I meditate, and that's the only reason I can't be a complete atheist because there's times in meditation where it's, you do feel like that that connected energy of some sort. It's like there's a, there's like a, another clearer sense of consciousness that comes about that makes you feel like mm, maybe I don't know. That seems spiritual to me. That's like that's a spiritual feeling. I don't know if I can just disregard that and say it's just my brain creating or releasing dopamine or something in my and, and make me feel good. Maybe it's something deeper, you know. Maybe you are really connecting on a on another level. Well, and I, you know, I like I like the reasons and I like the science and the justification, but also it's just being passionate about the pursuit. If it is dopamine, then dopamine is part of God. So. Yeah, exactly. That's what I feel like too. Dopamine is part of God. Uh, mathematics is part of God. Uh, quantum physics part of God, but like science is obviously the word, the language of God. If, if, if there, everything, it, well, and I think we're just suffering from like copyright. Like everybody wants the copyright on what God means, so they want to be angry about what it was or it wasn't, or they feel unfulfilled, or they just don't like how it's spelled. Like it's just the most convenient definition. It, it's just the name that we have for it, whatever it is, and. It's just every once in a while sad for me to look at somebody who I know is like really truly seeking, searching, and what I would consider to be much more spiritually evolved than I am. And then you mention God, or or within it, there's that connection to the Christian God, like that that might be something that they abolished, separated from themselves, or stepped away from in childhood. And you see that flash of hatred and all that misunderstanding that's from their earliest development. And it's a travesty because that's also where we all started to imagine. And that world of imagination, like when I see something that says that God is imaginary, I, I have like a hard time, like it pings so hard. I'm like, yeah, totally. <laughs> because the world of imagination, like the world inside of our minds is so amazing and, and equally amazing to, you know, those concrete things outside here. And then the interaction where those two places touch. You know, for science fiction or fantasy to be viable, there has to be a lot connected to this world. It has to be connected to what we call reality. But to me, it's um, giving credence to, let's see, the ineffable, good job, as the, <laughs> the places that we go where we manifest and visualize within our own mind's eye. And then when you realize that that is your creativity and your 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 passport to this other place, then you start to look at Hindu gods and be like, yeah, that's an amazing imagination, manifestation of the intensity of creation that's, you know, rooted and based in this reality, but then translate into something more ingenious, more creative than the, the world that we're in. Do you subscribe to the idea that their religion is kind of based on mushrooms psychedelic mushrooms <laughs> because if Boy, they if um, they worship cows right they don't kill cows <laughs> and that's where psychedelic mushrooms come from and i'm pretty sure their gods <laughs> look like somebody who had intense spiritual connection through mushrooms okay all right well where i'll go with this is um you know going back to the jewish and christian tradition of um god made man and the next thing man did was you know right i think right after he made it was um they started naming things. You know, people are really into names. They're really into just so stories, like 
I've always loved Rudyard Kipling and Aesop's fables, but uh, specifically Rudyard Kipling, like how the elephant got its trunk, you know, where the hell did the hippopotamus come from? We're always looking to give an explanation that's really concrete about how things work. And I'm much more passionate about the crazy humans that come up with the crazy stories than the reality or the truth within the outcomes. Okay. I just think humans are fucking amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if that's one answer, it's not the only answer. It's, it's all about that's one, that's one story. And was that the best story? You know, it's in, it's in the ability of the storyteller to capture the minds of the listeners and have, you know, the most beautiful images and ideas bloom in their minds. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I didn't have anything to add to that one. Sorry. Um, so when you, <laughs> you're very, I mean, you're, you're much smarter than I am. <laughs> you have, you no, have a deep understanding. No, I'm not. I'm a different type of intelligence. You have a what? <laughs> I'm just, I'm a different type of intelligence. You have a very in-depth type of intelligence. <laughs> I have a very, like, I'm just browsing through information here. Well, uh, and there are pitfalls. Like, I also at some point made the intention to be a bodhisattva. Oh, yeah? And I was talking to Alex Gray, who had actually had training to be a boy's outfit. Like, they give a license or something for it. And I didn't want to do that. But he's just like, we'll just do it and see what happens. Like, however you understand it, however you want to help people, however you want to be compassionate, manifest it. And I'm like, yeah. And um, why not? I want to help people. And it's interesting because I will follow something far enough to recognize where it's stopped being healthy. Um, it, I've seen where I'm foolish. I've seen where my greatest gifts to help others, I th- still believe, are within painting. And that the more people I carry or assist individually, um, the more karmic doors I open to other people's identities, whether they're their problems or, you know, just interacting with them that um, I take away from my gifts, my inheritance of what I can put into my painting. And so my interpretation of what words mean and how I can participate and help this world and this people and myself, I still believe is through painting. And it's, um, you know, it's just a pleasure to participate, but... I've also, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes. Everybody has. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't trust You're not really to... playing if you don't. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm trying to get smarter and not work harder. Yeah. I was showing with Fractal Nation this year at Burning Man. And that was, ex- you know, that's an extraordinary privilege to be with Android Jones and Amanda Sage and... um with other visionary artists. I mean, this is a big step for me. The pop surrealist world, see, and they do have beliefs, but that wasn't a, it wasn't an art movement based on beliefs and spirituality, to my knowledge. Um, you know, we were really hustling and trying to, you know, just support ourselves and represent a type of art that hadn't been popular and just roll with it and see where we could go. It was exciting. But when I met the visionary artists, it was like, oh, wait a minute. You know, there's a whole part of my world, my life, that I haven't been able to express in art. That really isn't a part of belonging to the academic world. That they 
they don't allow you to be. You know, you can't go through graduate school and say, um, you know, they ask you, where's this idea come from? You say visions. They're like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> nope, nope. Go back and come up with that Arthur C. Danto said this about Cindy Sherman's work, and that's why you're doing this. And, you know, your art is very heavily influenced by then by the, what you're reading and what you're putting into your work. And I'm not a typical visionary artist because I'm not necessarily working in exact or with the same level of prismatics or um, I'm probably, you know, I, I'll be very surprised if during my lifetime I ever were was a, a major supporter of entheogenic culture because I came into teaching by way of um, working with people with schizophrenia and I'm very aware that people's lives are extraordinarily fragile. People's psychology of their minds are so amazing and complex. I mean, we see like three million, I think, I don't know if it's three million or three billion, our eyes can distinguish millions of colors. We are amazing. And so to ever put anybody in a situation where their chemistry could be altered and it changed their lives forever in ways that they, um, I couldn't handle that kind of responsibility. That's not, that's not what I'm here to do. I think that, you know, I, I much more prefer like Dolly, who actually said, I am drugs. Um, <laughs> giving people the ultimate permission to manifest and unlock things on their own, if possible, would be the safest way to go. I think that would be highly entertaining. Now, did Burning Man actually live up to the hype? I mean, 20 years ago, I was much more a part of, or, or friends of mine went. And I would say I'm coming into a lot of this late. I would say that there's a, a an element of it that's like outward bound for privileged people. I met a lot of people with PhDs from NYU who had the money in order to spend to go. It's not cheap. And I did prepare for a year. I watched a lot of um, YouTube information. I certainly read the, news, the newsletter. I was going with somebody who was a burner six times over. And I was completely unprepared for not the things I prepared for, but the things I didn't prepare for. And I had an unusually high number of things I didn't prepare for, <laughs> which started with a hurricane coming through Florida, which caused me to have to handle circumstances from the get-go. I, I had to rent a car and go to Jacksonville, at which point they gave me the wrong person's ticket. They gave me Alice Jones's ticket. I have a tattoo of Alice Wonderland on my back. But <sighs> being given the wrong t ticket is not the first level. I got through security with somebody else's ticket. Really? And that was just the beginning of the journey. So I think I came in breach. I think I, I kind of did it backwards and upside down. But it was 2012. It's the year of the dragon. It was gutters and strikes. It was a really dynamic year. And a few of my friends straddled that dragon like a champ and did amazing things. And I would say the majority of the population of people that I know got rolled. It was an exhausting year. And... Um, Burning Man is a magical city. You know, it's 50,000 people in the desert that exist for a week. What I was most impressed with was the extraordinary gift of infrastructure. I mean, somebody's making money on it, but I met all the rangers, not all, but I met a, a, num a number of rangers, a number of people that work very hard, like the greeters, to make sure that that place is ready for people to have this experience. And nobody's saying it's going to be fun. It's an experience. This isn't, you know, this isn't Coachella. This isn't 
Lollapalooza, this is an alternate form of reality. You know, it's a it's a real crash course in way in a way that the world might be or could be. I'm not going to say should be. You know, different values, different norms. Um, it, it's a really interesting part of this time. And, yeah, I had an extraordinarily great time, and I had some pretty tragic, crazy, weird things happen. So that um, I did lecture at FSU on this, and when I went into it, I had 100 kids in that room who were all ready to go, and at the end, only three wanted to go. Because I tried to explain to them that people, you know, with extraordinary freedom comes responsibilities, um, which, you know, people lose their minds, they melt their brains on drugs, people die and people get raped. That's true of everywhere. Somebody somebody just 50 feet away from where my camp was. Um, was. So uh. I, I just had a disproportionate number of interviews. You know, I'm a researcher, I'm an academic, I, I talk to a lot of people. And I, I had a, a strange run of meeting a lot of people who um, had had friends or loved ones who never came back from Burning Man. Wow. I, that's stories I didn't hear. To me, it's not like don't go, but don't be naive. I think there are more drug casualties than um, people acknowledge. And also, you know, just brain chemistry is very uh, intricate, you know, subtle. I, I, you know, I did meet people. I talked to a lot of people. So I did meet people who had either gone off their meds or had um, known disorders and were totally indulging. And, you know, that just causes a ripple effect. So, yeah, it's it's necessary that we have a lot of responsibility for ourselves and, you know, enough to protect others. So my, you just, yeah, you just totally brought me down on my Burning Man. I, it I was, is. It's a downer. <laughs> I'm a downer on this one, but I'll tell you what. I also I was, like a good ghost story. I mean, I, I can tell you stories about Burning Man that will scare you. So You say ghost story? Yeah. Tell this me. Ghost story. <laughs> no, at that, I, I do. I'm going to leave it on a downer. I'm going to leave it there. You can cut it however you want, but I have to um, I have to drive all the way back to Tallahassee tonight, and I'm just in Tampa. So, okay. And I'll give it. I'll give it to you this way. If you if you want, call me again in a year, and we'll have a different interview. Okay, we'll do it. I'll do part two. I want to hear so. a ghost story. <laughs> um, well, thanks so much for taking the call and talking to me about all this stuff. I I, I found it really interesting. Um, so thanks Absolutely. a lot. Absolutely. Excellent. All right. All right. Have a good talk. night.